You know, if you've been around with us for a little while, you, you might remember that last summer, and I think the past two uh, summers, we've we've taken a break from some of the what we've been teaching through and looked at some of the psalms, just uh, two two to four psalms. And this has been a very intentional thing that um, that I think is is pretty important for us as a as a church and also as a, us as individuals because you know the psalms. Um, the Psalms are really like a, a, a medicine or a medical therapy for the, uh, for the believer, the Christian. Uh, in the same way that, that medicine, you need to know what to prescribe to treat different things. Uh, you need to know something about which Psalms say what, what they're useful for. You know, some of the Psalms are Psalms of, of praise, hallelujah Psalms. And to open up just at random to the uh, to the 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 Psalms and to pick a Psalm of lament of crying out how long oh God when we're in times of grief or suffering or difficulty it's, it's not the right time to use it some of the Psalms are Psalms of repentance crying out to God giving voice words to, uh, to, to things that we want to express to God but just can't quite the, put the words to it the Psalms help us with that so Hopefully, as we go through this, we see some of the psalms and understand where to turn to, to, uh, to, to have certain questions or certain uh, illnesses and ailments addressed. Some of the psalms also point very specifically to uh, the messianic hope that's presented in the Old Testament that finds its fulfillment in the New Testament. The messianic hope was the hope of a a, a, a human king, a son of the, 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 the best king yet, King David, who would come and rescue God's people out of their difficulties, out of their troubles, even uh, out of their sufferings and hinted at, at rescuing them out of sin itself. That human king, of course, is uh, expressed and, uh, and manifested in the person of Jesus, who wasn't just a human king, but was God himself who became a human. These three psalms here, Psalm 23 and also Psalm 22 and 24, are a collection, a, 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 a group of three psalms that point to this messianic hope. Now you know this one, it's a very familiar psalm, the Lord is... My shepherd, it begins, may not seem like a messianic psalm. It seems like it's just talking about God himself being our shepherd, but Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd. The good shepherd is the one who knows his sheep and cares for them, who doesn't run off when the wolves or the bears, the lions come and attack. The good shepherd is the one who, when the sheep hear his voice, they know, they know his voice. Now, I was preparing for the sermon and I, I heard a story about uh, eastern shepherds who still, when they uh, will sleep at night some of the time, will gather together and their, their flocks will just be intermixed and they'll sleep on the edges of the flocks to protect their flocks. And in the morning when they wake up, They'll go to different sides, and all they'll have to do is call out in their own voice, and the sheep know their voice, and they go to their shepherd. 
one of the questions that this psalm raises for us, that Jesus' self-identification as the good shepherd raises, is when you, when you hear God's voice, do you recognize it? Do, do you follow it? Do you know the difference between God's voice and the many other voices that would speak into our lives? It's interesting that this psalm begins with the Lord is my shepherd. And most of us think, wow, God is describing to us how he is our shepherd. Isn't that a powerful illustration? God's our shepherd. What other king or God was a shepherd to his people? Well, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, was a shepherd to his people. Long before Moses even began to write the Pentateuch, Pharaoh carried a shepherd's staff and called himself a shepherd of the people. On the other side of uh, the, the, the Jordan in Mesopotamia, still other kings called themselves shepherds long before David wrote these words, the Lord is my shepherd. The power, the power of this passage isn't that God calls himself our shepherd. The power of the passage is that the maker of heaven and earth, Yahweh, is our shepherd, is my shepherd. I mean, everybody has a shepherd. You know what a sheep without a shepherd is? Dead. Everybody has a shepherd or they're dead. The question is, do you recognize God's voice when He calls to you? Who is your shepherd? What, what voice do you respond to most quickly? I mean, is it the voice that tells you the things that you've heard all your life, the, the many uh, self-help books, advice, columns, radio stations? Can you, can you recognize when God's voice is different than their voice? If you understand the type of shepherd God is, our good shepherd, then we can understand his voice and hear his voice and respond to his voice when we hear it. This psalm describes the type of shepherd that the Lord is. The Lord, Yahweh, I am. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, as David wrote earlier, may the thoughts, the words of my mouth, and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
before we start, I don't think wolves will come in, but would somebody mind closing that door so it's not blowing around? One writer, as he was beginning his book on this psalm, told the story of how his family a number of years back bought a new home in a rural area and in the back was a fenced-in pasture land with a hill was covered with grass and they went out and bought five lambs and had the lambs graze on this, uh, this land. And every morning they would go out on their back deck and drink coffee and look at this serene scene of lambs grazing in their backyard. The scene that David describes here is anything but the idyllic pasture all fenced in. It's a nice thought. We read, he makes me lie down in green pastures, and we have that picture of the field. But the picture that David is describing is not one of being fenced in on all sides and drinking coffee on the deck. The picture is one of a dangerous journey, of beginning in one place and moving to another in the path is anything but, uh, but safe and serene. It goes through deep and dark valleys. One of the great pictures here that you almost read right over is in verse 3, it says he restores my soul. He, he corrects me. He, he, he restores me, sets me right. And the picture of a sheep needing to be restored, this word in the Hebrew is like uh, the picture of a cockroach that's fallen from the vent in the ceiling and is laying on its back and its legs are flailing in the air with no way of getting up. The sheep will oftentimes find a place to lay down and the place is not a comfortable place. It's rather a a hole and they'll get turned upside down and there's no way for them to get up unless the shepherd turns them over. The good shepherd restores their soul, leads them safely through these dangerous paths and yet brings them safely to the other side, to the end, the table that's set before them, verse 5. Now there's some debate on that verse 5 of whether this continues the picture of the sheep and the shepherd and whether this is some type of mesa or table land where the the sheep can go up to and it's safer and easier to defend and oftentimes has uh, grass up there or if this comes full circle and, and now is talking of humans dining with God Himself. I want to start today by taking us on this journey as if we're the sheep with the shepherd. And just walk through this and see the character of the good shepherd. And then come back around at the end and ask this question, is is he talking about sheep now or human beings? Because one of the troubling things about this passage is to call us those sheep, to call us sheep is really no compliment at all. Those cute lambs on the hillside are wonderful to play with, but sheep, sheep are the most dependent and, and unprotected animals 
pretty much of all of the animal kingdom. They're sitting ducks. Maybe we should say sitting sheep. Because of their vulnerability. They have no natural defenses. Their white wool not only is not camouflaged, but even weighs them down to the point that they can't run when trouble comes. And when they do run, they tend to all run together. One starts running, the other people don't. Sheep don't know what's going on. They just go with them. They don't know where they're running to. I mean, to call human beings sheep is really something of a put-down. Prophet Ezekiel talks about the faults of the shepherds in Israel. The shepherds were the, the priests who were to care for the flock and to teach them the word. The kings who were to defend the people and watch out for them and protect them from predators. The prophets who were to speak truth to them and warn them of the dangerous places. And each of these, in turn, had devoured the sheep and told the sheep what they wanted to hear instead of what they needed to hear, led them to danger, and failed to teach them altogether. In that passage, God is promising yet again that His shepherd, His good shepherd, that messianic hope of a shepherd would come and truly shepherd him people, His people, God Himself, there would come and be the shepherd of his people. At the end of that passage, in verse 31, verse 30, he says, And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them. In other words, they'll know my voice. And that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. And you are my sheep. Human sheep very words of scripture human sheep of my pasture and I am your God declares the Lord God Psalm 100 delights that we are God's people and the sheep of his pasture so set that question aside for a second all right I'm human and I'm a sheep what does that mean for me? It seems like a dual personality, a double personality. Are we to be schizophrenic going back and forth between this helplessness and being human? Or is there something even better there? Well, let's walk down this path with the shepherd here for a little bit before we come back to that. He leads me beside still waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Now just as in verse 1 we tend to focus uh, on the shepherd instead of the Lord being my shepherd, here we tend to focus on the green pastures instead of the first word, and that is he makes me lie down. Now of all the places that I think it's perhaps easiest to identify with the sheep, it's in these two words, he makes me lie down, because sheep are notorious for not wanting to rest for being consumed with everything around them, worried at the sound of predators they hear in a the distance, they won't lie down and rest. Distracted by the gnats and the flies around them that oftentimes get in their respiratory system and even in their skin and cause irritations, they won't lie down and rest. Worried 
that they won't find food or have enough food for later. So they go wandering off and try to find food and get lost and into dangerous places rather than lying down and rest when they, resting when they need to. Now, if anything, especially in this time, in this day and age, how many of us can identify with the temptation to not think we can rest? God made the heavens and the earth in six days, it says, and on the seventh day he rested. And then he commands his people in the fourth commandment, just as I worked for six days and then rested on the seventh, you are to work for six days, and then the seventh is to be to you a holy rest, a time when you can lay down. Both physically and spiritually, a time where you can set aside the anxieties of not being sure where the next meal is coming from, of worrying about the dangers surrounding you, of being distracted by the flies that keep bugging you. And can rest and be assured that God is our great provider and protector and healer and defender. If you don't want to identify as a sheep, with the sheep, in any other place, at least recognize that you don't like to rest. I mean, it's nice when you do it, but you do it kicking and screaming. But the one thing that impacts the sheep, sheep's ability to rest more than anything else is the presence of the shepherd. The nearness of the shepherd. If the shepherd is there, the sounds in the distance aren't as fearsome. If the shepherd is there, he can anoint the sheep with oil or with other medication to keep the flies away. If the shepherd is there, the sheep know that the meal is around the corner where the shepherd knows. Now we just finished this whole sermon series on Daniel, and if you recognize nothing else out of that sermon series, know this. That the reality of Christ's kingdom You remember the four kingdoms that led up to Christ coming and His reigning as King? The reality of Christ's kingdom that is even more real to us now on this side of the cross than it was to David on that side of the cross is that Jesus is present with us in a way that He was not in the Old Testament. Jesus actually enters into the heart and the life of the believer and His Holy Spirit lives in us in a way that gives us a comfort and a a presence that allows us to rest in that salvation that He has won. In the knowledge that the rest actually restores us so that we are able to continue on the journey on the next day, on the Monday through Friday or Saturday, that we are called to do this work. The... the, uh, the, 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 um, uh, philosopher Voltaire said... You want to take away Christianity and its influence on the world? Take away the Sabbath. Undermine the Sabbath. You do that, the rest of it will fall in place. Not only a philosopher, but a prophet in some sense in that way. As we as a culture do away with the rest of the Sabbath and the worship that God sets a time for and clears our schedules out, as we do away with that, 
everything else falls away as well. But when we rest, find our rest in Christ and worship, and worship the right things, we're restored. We're turned off of our back and put back onto our feet. He leads me beside still waters. The Hebrew there is literally waters of rest. He gives us what we need to be restored after the heat of the the difficult journey of each week, of each day, really, as we meet with Christ and our souls are restored in times of refreshment in His Word and in prayer. When we forget the rest, we fear all the other things. It goes on to say, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Now for a sheep, they're just right paths. They're good paths. They're the way that they should go. They're not the dangerous path that goes up the side of the, rock, the mountain. He continues on right away. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, many of us think when we're going through the valley of dark darkness, literally this is the deep darkness. Many of us think when we go through those valleys of deep darkness that we've gotten off the path. But the valleys of deep darkness are actually God's right paths. Did you catch that? The Good Shepherd leads us on these right paths that include the paths of darkness. Now why would He take us through paths of darkness that seems just cruel and mean? Well, oftentimes, in the heat of the summer, the valleys are the places where the water is. The still water is actually in the dark valley. And these valleys can be deep ravines and places where the sun only shines for a little bit of time during the day when the sun is right overhead. And they're scary, but if the shepherd is there, we have nothing to fear. Why is it called only the shadow of death? It's because for the sheep that are under the care of this shepherd, they need not fear even death itself. Because the promise that Jesus brings is not simply that He'll walk with us through this life, but that He will shepherd us into the next life, into an eternal life with Him. And so while death may come near, and even death may impact some of the sheep, and death even bring, comes to each of us until Christ comes, the full weight of that death, the full impact of that death is never fully felt by the person who is cared for by the Good Shepherd, God Himself. It can't be. It's only the shadow. We only feel the fear of it. It's not the impact of the death itself. So even though we walk through those dark places, we need not fear. Easier said than done, I know. But What are some of the other reasons that God leads us through these paths? It's not only that the paths are places where water is, but oftentimes they're actually the safest route. We may see a a, a path going up the side of the mountain. But after you turn the bend and you walk up a little bit, you realize that the path gives way and it's just a a solid sheer cliff. And in fact, what looks scarier through the darkness and the unknown 
is the safer way to reach the place where the shepherd wants his sheep to go. The reality of the predators in these places may be there, but the shepherd is the one who defends his sheep. When the wolves come, the good shepherd, Jesus describes the good shepherd. The good shepherd isn't the one that runs when the wolves come. The good shepherd is the one who lays down his life for the sheep. Now, who lays down their life for the sheep? I mean, really, when push comes to shove, right? Who's going to actually die for their sheep? Another pastor gave this illustration. He said, listen, we, we love our pets. In, in San Diego, he's someplace else. He said, we love our pets, though, in San Diego, right? We would do most things for our pets, but which of us, when an 18-wheeler is bearing down on our pet, is going to jump in front of the 18-wheeler and push our pet out of the way and die ourselves? How many of us are going to truly do it? I mean, some of our pets are really good, and we might think about it for a second, but which of us are really going to do it? But Jesus says that the sheep are so valuable to me that I, being the good shepherd, will lay down my life for the sheep. As we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have anything to fear because the good shepherd has died so that we don't have to face death itself. Now death in its fullest sense is not just our body no longer functioning. Death in its fullest sense the Bible describes it is a broken relationship with God. It's separation from God. It's isolation. You know the difficulty, the pain of a broken relationship with somebody that you love. When they shun you, they don't want to receive your love. You, you, you felt that at some point in your life and that is what death in its fullness is, is no ability to reconcile that relationship anymore. The Bible says that when Adam and Eve sinned, when they ate that fruit, they broke that relationship and there was no way to reconcile with God by anything that they could do. The only way to reconcile the relationship was for God Himself to pay the debt that Adam and Eve owed. The Bible says the wages of sin are death. Separation from God. Jesus says, I am going to die that death. And experience separation from God for a time so that, so that they don't have to experience that. The good shepherd is the one who lays down his life for the sheep and that is exactly what Jesus has done. Now the good shepherd is not afraid to correct his sheep. And in fact it goes on to say, For you are with me, your your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And this is where we get a little bit edgy because we're not quite comfortable with the idea of the rod. One writer, Philip Keller, wrote a book called um, A Shepherd uh, Looks at Psalm 23. He wasn't the shepherd I mentioned earlier who, or the, the man earlier who bought a bunch of sheep and put them in their, his backyard. Uh, Philip 
Keller actually was a shepherd, worked as a shepherd in two different settings. He says, says to go and see professional shepherds work with the rod that they carry is pretty amazing. Sometimes the sheep will actually wander off and the shepherd is far away from them and can't get to them in time. And, and the shepherd is so skilled with his rod, he will actually throw the rod in a way that hits one side of the sheep and turns them back to keep them from danger. The good shepherd is one who knows that sometimes his sheep need correction. Who teaches and leads his sheep so that they ultimately won't face death itself. The good shepherd is one that leads us in paths of righteousness. Who teaches us the right ways to walk. Now here's where I want to bring us back in to answer the question, are we human or are we sheep? What does it mean to be made human? What does it mean for us to be human beings? Well, God says, in my image, I created them, male and female, back in Genesis. Say, well, I've heard that a lot, but what does it really mean to be made in God's image? Does it mean that we kind of look like him? Like if God was looking in a mirror, he might see something like us. Is that we kind of look like him because sometimes he has arms and legs and a mouth that speaks. And so we have that unlike other things. Well, no, that's not really what it is. In fact, we find in the Bible that to be made in God's image is in one sense to be made with a conscience, to have a sense of what's right and wrong. It's something that distinguishes, clearly distinguishes human beings from all other creatures, to be able to discern right from wrong. Now, whether you're a believer in Jesus or a follower of God or you're just seeking this out, you identify with this part of being made in God's image. Because at some point, you felt the conscience, the twinge of guilt that said something I'm doing is not right. And it's not just because I don't think it's right. It's because in a larger sense, this just is not right. Because we've been made in the image of God who is the very image of what is right, of true, of good. And though we've sinned against God and fallen and lost some of that, uh, that, that goodness and that knowledge, we still hold on to a sense of right and wrong having been made in God's image. Now, let me veer off course a little bit here because I, get, I ask the question sometimes of, you know, well, how do we convince other people? How do we convince ourselves right and wrong? You know, it seems like people have these two lists. Like this list is the things, are the things that God says are wrong to do, and I agree with this list. <coughs> And this other list of the things that God says are right or wrong, and I'm not so sure about this list. I mean, a lot of the things just seem old-fashioned. Like, is that really true today? I mean, that seems just out to lunch. 
I don't get why that even would be considered right or wrong. We, we have these two lists. Now, I generally try to appeal to the first list because all of us can identify with that list. Right? Whatever that list is, you, you have some sense of having done wrong in your life. I don't get into the second list until I've seen that people are fairly convinced of the goodness of God. That God's love is what has established this right and wrong and instructed us. And it's God's love that helps us to see that maybe I don't see the full picture. Maybe my understanding of right and wrong is limited by what I see and experience and have learned. Maybe God is actually bigger than my concept of virtue and right and wrong. Maybe seeing that God was actually willing to die for me when I was acting like a sheep and stupid and going off onto craggy cliffs and not listening to his voice and ignoring him and listening to everybody else's voice, maybe when I see that goodness of the shepherd, that kind of love, I might trust that God might know something more about love that I don't understand. That God's law is good and actually teaches me how to love in better ways than I ever dreamed possible. Because this is how God presents his law in almost every setting in the gospel, in the Bible. How does he begin the Ten Commandments? He says, I am the Lord your God. Who what? Who rescued you out of the land of Egypt. I showed you my love and goodness before I ever gave you the commands. I demonstrated to you what true love is before I ever even got deeper into the commands and told you, yeah, it's not enough just to keep the letter of the law. It, it, your heart attitude matters as well. I showed you that I was able and willing to even keep those heart attitude laws when I came and died for you. I brought you a picture of what restored humanity actually is because humanity, what does it mean to be made into God's image? It's that we have a knowledge of right and wrong, some hint of that, and it's also that we've been given dominion over all the other creatures. All those other animals, we've been given dominion. It doesn't mean we are abusive to them. What kind of shepherd is abusive to his flock? The one that bites and devours it. That's not how, what it means to be given dominion. Given dominion is that we are to care for God's creatures. Care for God's creation. Care for one another. To be human is actually to move out of the place of being a sheep and in the place of being a shepherd. Jesus was the true human because he was the true and full shepherd. And so we're left 
to identify ourselves with these sheep-like qualities, the propensity to run and to be afraid and to not rest. And yet we're also restored to the true sense of being a human and to be a shepherd, not only to God's animals that he created, but also to other human beings. Now the difficulty of this is expressed beautifully in this poem by uh, poem song by the singer Rich Mullins. I know most of you are tired of me talking about Rich Mullins because I saw a movie about him called Ragamuffin a couple of weeks and it just reminded me of the beauty of his music and his poetry and it, it was music that was influential to me during college uh, and so it just brought me back to this place. It's a wonderful uh, story of Rich Mullins, this troubled soul who knew how to write poetry and to make beautiful music, and to express his own sheep-like qualities, and yet at the same time delight in being called God's children, human beings restored. He told the story of this song in a concert, and I watched a concert clip. And he said, yeah, one time I was in uh, the Netherlands, in Amsterdam, and doing a concert there, performing a concert there. And I was in the hotel in Amsterdam one night and I had learned from my past experiences that I shouldn't be alone in these kinds of situations. And so one of the other members of the band was there in the hotel in the other bed. And, and he said, but the allure of all the things that are available in Amsterdam was just calling me. And he said, I didn't even want to sin. I just wanted to go and be near the sin. You ever feel that way? I didn't want to sin. I just want to go near the sin. He said he sat up for hours waiting until he heard his friend who was called Beaker, Beaker snore because he knew then his friend would be asleep and he could go out. Hour passed, hour passed and he stayed awake and by 5 a.m. he realized that Beaker wasn't going to snore. So he went to sleep. Next morning he woke up and he wrote this song called Hold Me Jesus. He says, sometimes my life just don't make sense at all when the mountains look so big and my faith just seems so small. Surrender don't come natural to me. I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than to take what you give that I need. And I've beat my head against so many walls. Now I'm falling down. I'm falling on my knees. So hold me, Jesus, because I'm shaking like a leaf. You have been king of my glory. Won't you be my prince of peace? I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than take what you give that I need. It's the life of the sheep. But Jesus offers so much more. The rich Mullins knew it. I've learned it. Many of us have experienced it. Hear and believe that Jesus is all that you need. Father, thank you for being our good shepherd. Jesus, 
for leading us and giving us your Holy Spirit that you are ever present in that hotel room with Rich Mullins in our darkest and deepest valleys, in the places where we lie down in green pastures, in the waters of rest that you provide for us. May we know your care and your comfort, your protection and your provision as you shepherd us. We ask this all in your name, Lord Jesus.